Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Job. So we uh, launch a brand new sermon series, Job Out of the Whirlwind. And uh, I would dare say that, that many Christians, if not most Christians, have never read the book of Job or really explored it or plumbed its depths. And even in these next few weeks, uh, there's only so much that we're going to be able to uh, explore. So I would encourage you in your own time in these next few weeks to read the book of Job on your own, uh, in your own devotional time, to supplement these times on Sunday morning, because this is going to be more of, a, of an overview. Even though this is going to be 12 or 13 weeks, it's still more of, a, of an overview of Job. If you're not sure where Job is, go to the Psalms. That's like right in the middle of your Bible, so that's really easy to find. Then take a left, and then right there you'll find Job. Uh, let's go to Job chapter 1. We'll start in the beginning. Job chapter 1. This is not allegory. This is history. This really happened. This is God's word. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Maybe that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons 
and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro and on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but... Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? All this Job did not sin with his lips. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and that you would bless the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word. We can do nothing without help from the Holy Spirit this morning. So, Spirit, come. And give us open eyes and open ears, and let us hear what you have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin um, a new sermon series through Job, I'll provide you with an upfront warning. Uh, This series will be very difficult, difficult for me to preach, difficult for you to hear, and not simply because I'm not a great preacher, although I'm sure that will be a part of it but also because Job is simply a very difficult book about a very difficult topic, namely suffering. And this book is going to require of us great grappling and wrestling and deep pondering as we discern together the message of this great Old Testament book. Book of Job is not a book for those who want a warm, fuzzy, Hallmark card, precious moments kind of inspiration. It's not for those who want to regard Christianity as a sunshine-only experience. Book of Job is not about your best life now. It cuts against the grain of so much of the shallow, superficial, shiny, toothy grin kind of Christianity with a lot of easy pat answers like you see on Christian TV sometimes or in Christian bookstores. Book of Job grapples with our pain and our perplexity. But for that very reason, I think the book of Job has the capacity to build in us a more robust faith, a faith that learns how to live in both 
the sunshine and the shadows. And I pray that God will increase our faith as we explore the riches and wisdom found in this scripture. Now, Job deals with a unique kind of suffering. That's something else we should probably recognize up front. Uh, Job is not about suffering in general. And it's not about someone who's suffering due to the consequences of their own sin. We must acknowledge that at least some of our suffering sometimes comes from our own sin. There are times in my life where I can look back and I can connect the dots between my sin and my suffering. But that's not what Job is about. Instead, Job is a book that deals with innocent suffering. By that I mean suffering that comes upon you that you didn't bring on yourself through your own sin. Job's suffering is not retributive punishment from God. Job's done no specific sin that has brought all of this upon him. And we know this is the case because right out of the gate, the book of Job makes very clear to us that Job is a good man. We learn a whole lot about Job in just the very first verse. Look there with me. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Text says Job was blameless. That doesn't mean Job was sinless. Some of you may have translations that say he was perfect. Again, that doesn't mean that he was sinless. Instead, that word blameless speaks of genuine not genuineness, and it speaks of authenticity. Uh, The idea of this word is conveyed by an old expression used by some of the rabbis, his within was like his without. Or to put it in more modern terms, what you see is what you get. There's no duplicity with Job. There's no faking with Job. Job's not putting on a show and, and acting all holy at church on Sunday and then living like the devil from Monday through Saturday. He's a real believer. He's the real deal. Verse 1 tells us also that Job feared God. This means he was wise in the things of God. And he had a proper respect and reverence for God. And that led him to turn away from evil, which means he lived a lifestyle of of constant repentance. Uh, Verses 2 and 3 describe the incredible blessings that God has showered upon Job. Incredible wealth and possessions, a large family, and greatness. And then verses 4 and 5 put the spotlight again on Job's godliness. Look at this. Job would consecrate his children, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So here we see Job as the godly spiritual leader of his family who's not only concerned about his own walk with God, Uh, but also the relationship that his children have with God. And and in a priestly mediating type role, he offers up these sacrifices on their behalf, not because he's sure that they've done something wrong, but just in case. He he intercedes for them on their behalf. And notice verse 5. What sin in particular is Job concerned about? What sin is he especially sensitive to? It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That's a big deal. That's a big deal to Job, and that's a big deal in the context of this book. Some folks, you know, are all about outward piety while neglecting the heart, hiding sin in their heart. But Job knows better, and he's a man that's concerned about the heart. So we see Job is a godly man whose lifestyle is not one characterized by sinful rebellion. And that's important. You won't interpret the book of Job rightly if you miss that point. 
And as we go through the book of Job, there's, pro- there's probably going to be times where some of you may be tempted to think, man, Job must be hiding some big whopper of a sin for all this stuff for God to be coming at him like this. But that's not the case at all. Job is a man of integrity, and he is walking with the Lord. He's not a hypocrite. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The sons of God are the angels. And it's a fascinating gathering. We have here some sort of divine council taking place somewhere in the, in the heavenly realms, the seat of the government of the universe, and the Lord is in the chair. And we're reminded here that there are active and powerful and unseen forces at work in the world, influencing the world, but that God is supreme over all of them. I'm reminded of Psalm 89.7. It says, in the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. And these angels come and they present themselves before the Lord. Uh, Perhaps they've been summoned to give an account of their doings. Perhaps they're coming before this superior, ready to do his will, ready to receive orders. And among them is one who is known as the Satan. In the Hebrew, the article the is before the word Satan. And so here in Job, the book of Job, Satan is more of a title or description rather than a personal name. So if you were translating Job literally, the Satan came, the Satan did this, the Satan said that. The word Satan means something like adversary or opponent or accuser. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? The Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he'll curse you to your face. What's he saying? He's saying, seriously, God, of course Job loves you. Of course Job serves you. You're his sugar daddy. You give anybody what you give Job, and they're going to be on the God train. Now, Satan really lives up to his name accuser, doesn't he? What is he accusing Job of? He's accusing Job of not having integrity. What you see is not what you get. Job doesn't love you, God. He loves your stuff. He loves the stuff you give him. Job doesn't worship God. Job really worships his possessions, his family, his kids. As long as Job gets the stuff he wants from you, he's all in. Take it away and he'll be out of there. But if you read this carefully, you will see that it's not just Job that Satan is accusing that Satan is slandering, that Satan is mocking. Look closely at verses 9 through 11, and you will see an even deeper and more heinous and blasphemous accusation, thinly veiled, but pretty obvious. Satan is accusing God. God, you, in and of yourself, by yourself, aren't good enough, beautiful enough, 
satisfying enough, valuable enough, sufficient enough for a man. You're not as great as you think you are. And the only way you can keep worshipers is by buying them off, bribing them, keeping their families safe, keeping their wealth intact, keeping their houses strong. Do you really think, God, that you are so sufficient in and of yourself that you are all that a man needs? That if a man loses all but has you, that he can turn to you and find all he needs in you alone? Who in the world is going to believe that one, God? You alone are not enough, and the whole universe will see it when you take all of his stuff away. And the Lord responds. Verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. That verse is shocking. That's, this is one of these verses in the Bible that maybe we can become so familiar with that it doesn't hit us between the eyes like it should. This is stunning. Don't sweep this one under the rug. We need to feel the weight of verse 12. Job is a good man. Job is a faithful, innocent, sincere believer. God loves this man. And God is under no obligation to Satan. God knows the truth about Job. God's not insecure. God knows Job's heart. He could have simply told Satan, you're wrong. Get lost. And Job could have went on blissfully happy with his warm, comfortable life. Would have been a really short book. The end. And yet the sovereign Lord, the compassionate God of the Bible, permits Satan to unleash hell on Job's life. Does that picture of God line up with your picture of God? Does it make you wonder if he's on your side? Well, in the following verses, blow after devastating blow falls on Job. Job loses his wealth, his possessions, his children. I wonder, how, you know, as I was reading this and preparing for this, I wonder how I would have responded if all that had happened to me in a single day. How would you have responded? We know how Job responded. Verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. In the ancient world, those were outward signs of the deepest of griefs and mournings. We would all mourn and grieve in our own way. Job's anguish is nothing out of the ordinary. It's normal. It's expected. You know, and that, that should be a word to us that that it is okay for Christians to grieve, for Christians to mourn, for Christians to feel sadness. Sometimes people act like it's all spiritual when you're just kind of all happy, clappy all the time. That it's unspiritual to be crushed with sorrow. Not so. Job's a godly man, the godliest man of his time. And here he is, mourning. That's normal. But what happens next is not normal. And totally unexpected. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that is a phenomenal response, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But right now, suffice to say that Satan has proved wrong. 
Let's move to chapter 2. Chapter 2 takes us back to the heavenly realms and to yet another meeting of the divine council. And the Satan, the accuser, is back. And the scene unfolds in identical fashion to what we saw in chapter 1. Verse 3, God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me to, uh, against him to destroy him without reason. Now, without reason, that doesn't mean that God doesn't have reasons for whatever he does or whatever he decides. What, what it means is, you, is, is that you, you've incited me to come against him and, and he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing to deserve this. There's no sin in his life that that should bring this upon him. But the Satan, ever stubborn, digs in his heels and is not done with his accusations. Verse 4, Satan answered the Lord, said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he'll curse you to his face. In other words, Satan is glibly saying that what's most important to Job is his own life. His own health, his own physical comfort. He cares about that more than he cares about his possessions or his children or you, God. Stretch out your hand and touch his body and he'll throw you under the bus and curse you. Verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And in the next verses, we see Satan striking Job with illness. He covers every part of Job's body with painful sores. He's under such physical torment that he wishes that he could die. That becomes obvious in chapter 3. We'll get there next week. Job is physically a wreck. He's sitting in the ashes without children, without wealth, without health. And verse 9 is perhaps one of the most difficult trials so far. He loses even the support of his wife. Verse 9. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Awesome advice. Job's wife presents a particularly challenging temptation for Job. Yeah, I want to say sometimes I think people are too hard on Job's wife. She's lost her kids too. Uh, She's lost everything too. And she's watching this man that she loves suffering immeasurably. Sometimes people suffer so much that you wish that they would die. Not because you hate them, but because you want them to be relieved of their suffering. But, but, but Job's wife presents a special challenge for, for, for Job, a special temptation. Because what has Job feared so much that his children would do? Curse God. What does Satan want Job to do? Curse God. And now when Job's wife provides counsel, what is her counsel? Curse God. Job's wife is unwittingly a tool of Satan's, speaking Satan's words into Job's ear. And Job responds in verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Job, by the way, is being kind to his wife. He's saying, this is not like you. You're speaking like one of these foolish women, one of those fools. That's not the wife that I know. Don't talk like that. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. All right, so for the the, the last part of this message, I've got some observations, some implications, some reflections. There's about about eight of them, but most of them are very fast, so don't worry. Um, And and if, if if I don't unpack these too much today, don't worry, because 
a lot of this we're going to be un- uh, unpacking and unfolding in the weeks to come. But just, just some brief things for us to, to think about initially. First of all, Job is a believer with real integrity. These are in your notes also in the, in the bulletin. Job is a believer with real integrity. Author of this book has already made that clear. And we need to keep that in our heads as we continue reading Job because later we're going to meet Job's three friends and they're going to dispute that fact. They're going to argue that Job's extreme suffering proves that Job has done something really, really bad. But what is critically important is not what Job's friends say about him, but what God says about him. And we've seen in Job 1 and Job 2 that God considers Job to be a righteous and blameless man. He commends Job. He's not some hypocrite hiding some secret sin. He's a real believer. The implication for us is that it's wrong to automatically jump to the conclusion that our suffering or someone else's suffering means that they or we did something wrong and that God's punishing us. We do that all the time. Bad stuff's happening to us. Car breaks down. Other things, bad things happen. And we're like, man, what did I do, God? We're talking like God is is getting back at us for something. We've got to be careful not to just automatically jump to those conclusions. Book of Job totally demolishes that view that, that there's always a direct correlation between your suffering and some sin that you did. We'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. Next thing. Our perspective is limited. Our perspective is limited. Job teaches us that as important as our own experiences and perceptions are, there are also things going on behind the scenes, things we cannot see, things that happen in the heavenly realms that can affect our lives down here on earth. Job never discovers the heavenly council meeting. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes, and as far as we know, he never knows. We can see only part of the picture, so we've got to be very careful not to just jump to conclusions about things. Our perspective is limited. Next thing. Satan is real, powerful, and dangerous, but God is supreme and sovereign over Satan. A popular worldview today is dualism. Actually, it's been popular for practically forever. Dualism suggests that there is a good, there is an evil... And they're relatively equal. You've got light and darkness duking it out. And sometimes the light side gets the upper hand. And sometimes the dark side is winning. It's never quite certain who's going to come out on top. That's, that's popular in Eastern philosophy. It's the philosophy behind the Star Wars movies where you have a light side and a dark side. This kind of view has crept into the church. Where many Christians view Satan as the equal opposite of God. They may never actually say that. But, but that's how they act. As, as if God and Satan are slugging it out, and sometimes Satan scores some points, and sometimes God kind of manages to get a couple blows in there and get the upper hand. And we're on the edge of our seat. Who's going to win this one? That kind of dualistic thinking may be popular, but it's not biblical. And as we see both here in chapter, two, in chapter 1 and 2 and in other parts of the Bible, Satan cannot lift a finger without God permitting it. Did you catch that? Satan can't do anything. Satan has to, has to get permission from God to do anything, and then Satan puts up boundaries, or God puts up boundaries, and Satan can't even cross those boundaries. Who's in control here? Who's in charge here? 
Satan is not free to do whatever he wants. Satan is like a fierce lion, but he is a lion that is ultimately on a leash. As Martin Luther says, uh, the devil is God's devil. Next observation. The most important question in the universe is, do we fear God? And if so, why? In Job 1 verse 9, Satan says to God, does Job fear God for no reason? Maybe I overstated that as the most important question, but I do think it's one of the most important questions in the whole Bible. And God knows the answer, but He wants the question answered publicly for Satan to see, for the angels to see, for the world to see, for you to see over the next few weeks as we go through the book of Job, for you to discover as you're going through your own trials and your own difficulties, the question, does Job fear God for nothing? The question, is God in and of himself, by himself, more valuable and sufficient than anything else? There is no question more relevant to you this morning than that one. There's no question more relevant to the world. You need to know the answer to that question. Is God the most valuable treasure in the universe, or is there a greater treasure? And if God does not deliver the treasure you think he should deliver, is it time for you to cut bait? And find another way to get what you want. And those are questions we need to grapple with in our own lives. Do you fear God for nothing? Do we love and worship God for his own sake? Or are we more interested in the fact that he can give us the stuff we want? Do we place a higher value and premium on the gifts or the giver? Book of Job is going to push us in the weeks to come to seriously grapple with that question in our own lives. Fifth observation. God is sovereign over suffering. This is huge. There's a popular view out there that God really is trying his best to prevent bad things from happening to us, but he just can't do it all. And sometimes bad stuff just gets past him and he fails us. God's scrambling around trying to put out this fire and that fire, but sometimes his hands are tied. He only has two hands, you know. And he can't stop evil, all evil, from having its way. Poor, frustrated, impotent God. That's not the biblical view of God. That's not Job's view of God. After all these things happen, what does Job say? How does Job assess the situation? As he considers the loss of his children, his possessions, his wealth, his servants, his health, his greatness... Job does not see these things as a result of blind chance. And he doesn't see it as bad luck. And he doesn't even attribute the calamity to Satan. Even though it's clear from our reading that Satan is involved. But look at what Job says in chapter 2, verse 10. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? God is in this, Job is saying. This calamity is from God. And we might say, well, Job was wrong. The Sabaeans raided your territory, Job. The Chaldeans did this. There were certain weather systems and weather patterns that caused the fire of God, probably lightning, to come down and destroy things and cause that tornado to come. Other people did this. The devil did this. Don't put this on God, Job. Isn't there a part of you that wants to say that? To let God off the hook when bad stuff happens. But the book of Job 
almost anticipating such concerns, says at the end of verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You may feel Job's assessment was wrong, but the God-breathed, spirit-inspired word of God says that Job was right, and he didn't sin with his lips. Because though Satan was the agent of the havoc wreaked upon Job's life, none of it could have happened without God's sovereign permission. We just need to, we just need to recognize that and deal with that and wrestle with that if need be. But that's the truth. God is sovereign over Job's suffering. And God is sovereign over your suffering, not the devil. Now, Job's not an idiot. Of course he knows the Sabaeans raided his home and carried out these acts. Of course he knows there's a devil. But he also knows that the buck doesn't stop with the devil. The buck stops with God. But there's more. Turn back to Job 1. Not only is Job acknowledging the sovereignty of God, but look down at the final verse of Job 1. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Sometimes, I think, people are afraid to acknowledge God's sovereignty over suffering and evil because they think that somehow that's like unjustly blaming God. But Job shows us that there's a way to acknowledge the sovereignty of God over all things, good and bad, while not accusing him of wrong, not accusing him of sin. Job, at least so far, still sees God not just as totally sovereign, but also as totally good. Job's going to be sorely tested on this point in the coming chapters, but for now at least, he's strong in that conviction. The very worst thing you can do is try to defend God by taking him off the hook when suffering and evil strikes. You may feel like you're solving problems by saying God couldn't stop this thing or that thing from happening. God couldn't stop that cancer. God couldn't stop my business from failing. God couldn't stop the Charleston shootings. He was impotent. We're tempted to go there to try to defend God, but I promise you, you don't want to go there. You will create many more problems than you think you will solve by denying God his sovereignty. You take away God's sovereignty over suffering and you've taken away the most powerful bulwark and your spiritual arsenal that will hold you up and sustain you in life's darkest moments and protect you from despair. Don't cut your own throat by denying the sovereignty of God. When disaster strikes my life and I'm going through a dark and difficult time and you try to help me and encourage me and give me hope, let me just tell you this in advance so you'll know how to help me. The very worst thing you can say is, Deemer, God's not in this. God has nothing to do with this. This is outside of God's sphere of influence. If you want to drive me insane, curled up in the fetal position, keep telling me that my trial isn't under the domain of God's sovereign control. Keep telling me that God has no meaning or purpose or plan in my adversity. You tell me that, you might as well tell me there's no God. If blind chance or other people or Satan is sovereign over your suffering and not God, that's a terrifying universe. But if an all-good all-wise, all-benevolent God is also all-sovereign, that gives us our greatest hope in the midst of our greatest trials. Next observation. 
both God and the devil have a design in your suffering. When you suffer, God has an intention for it, and so does Satan. And those intentions are at odds with one another. Satan had a design in Job's suffering to destroy and discredit Job and to belittle God and his glory. God has a design to glorify himself and benefit his people, the exact opposite. And so, for example, I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 1, where the apostle writes, "...and this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." But folks, we've got to admit, though, that it can be hard to see how God might be working our sufferings for our benefit. You can bet that it would have been hard for Job to see that. And yet, the book of James tells us in the New Testament to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reason we should be joyful in trials is not because we love pain. That's not what James said. According to James, we count it all joy when we meet trials because we have a confidence that God is in the midst of this, working out a good purpose for us. He has good intentions in the trial. The trial won't destroy us. It'll actually be turned around to benefit us. And then just a few chapters later, James writes, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There was something happening in Job's sufferings, James tells us, beyond just God proving the devil wrong. There was a purpose for the testing of Job's faith, God was working towards a good end in Job's life. And James connects that with the compassion and mercy of God. Now, I don't know about you, but my first reaction to James chapter 5, verse 11 is, yeah, right. Compassion and mercy in Job's life? If that's compassion and mercy, thanks, but no thanks. I'll do a little less compassion, thank you very much. We'll come back to that verse in a few weeks. But, but for now, my point is simply that God had good designs in Job's suffering, even if they're not immediately obvious. And he has good designs in the sufferings of all his people, which means that for the believer, there is no such thing as suffering in vain. There's no such thing as meaningless suffering. Instead, the Apostle Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Two more observations. Your greatest suffering is your greatest opportunity to glorify God and demonstrate His worth, His value, and His greatness. Let's be honest. What is it about Job that inspires and moves us the most? What is it about him that speaks the loudest and clearest and most powerful word about who God is? Is it Job's faithfulness to God in the midst of Job's wealthy, plush, comfortable, trouble-free life. That's what the health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers say. They believe the greatest witness to the world for God is to tell the world, look at me, I'm wealthy. I'm healthy. I got a private jet. I got millions in the bank. I got three mansions, and I got it because I follow God. Isn't God great and awesome? 
But is that the best witness about God to the world? Does that send the best message to the world about God? You know it doesn't. You know that the amazing message about the worth and value of God is not as clearly seen while Job is enjoying the lifestyle of the rich and famous. And I'm not saying that it's wrong that Job was rich. And I'm not saying it's wrong that you're rich. What I'm saying is that the clearest and most powerful message of the worth The value, treasure that God is, is when Job loses his other treasures and Job's response, even in his grief and sadness, is to bow down and worship God and bless the name of the Lord. His attitude, sitting in the ash heap, scraping the sores off of his body, is not to turn away from God, but to hold on to God with everything he has. Now, either Job is a lunatic a crazed wacko, or Job knows something about God that many of us don't know or are only beginning to learn, that to lose all but have God is better than to have all and lose God. When we suffer, when we lose it all, and as a result we abandon God and we curse God, what kind of message does that send to the world? It sends the message that Christianity is a sham, that God is not sufficient for me, And it agrees with Satan's accusations about God. But when we persevere through trial, holding on to God, and we sing, every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. When we sing that and we mean it, we force the world to consider that maybe, just maybe, This God we talk so much about really is as amazing as we say he is. Puts a God in the spotlight and can draw men and women to come and ask you about the hope that you have in you. Final observation in closing. God may permit what he hates to achieve what he loves. God is not a sadist. God does not take cruel pleasure from the suffering of his children. Which means that if he permits suffering, it must be, it must be to achieve something that in the end is greater and weightier than the suffering. And while Job is a good example of God permitting what he hates to achieve what he loves, namely his glory and Job's greater good, Job's story points us to a better example. If you wonder how can God, through permitting horrific suffering and terrible evil, achieve something that is good and wonderful and brings maximum blessing in the end, if you wonder that, look to Jesus, who exceeded Job in both his greatness and his suffering. Job was a man who walked with God, but only Jesus was perfectly innocent, perfectly holy, perfectly pure. Job fell from riches and respect down to the ash heap, but Christ descended from the heavenly realms where he had infinite riches and enjoyed praise from the holy angels. He descended from that to a world where he would become poor. He would have no place to lay his head. He would be mocked and scorned and spat upon by wicked men and nailed to a slab of wood. The forces of hell were unleashed on Job. But on the cross, Jesus suffered the reality of hell itself. 
as Jesus, this totally perfect, blameless, and innocent man, had your sin and my sin put upon him. He didn't deserve it. He did no wrong. And yet as he hung crucified, God poured out his holy wrath and anger towards our sin on Jesus, who had no sin. Job suffered, yes, but God spared Job's life. But not so with Jesus. After suffering infinitely more than Job, Jesus, bruised and battered, purple and swollen, drowning in his own blood, is killed. While Job offered up burnt animal sacrifices consumed by fire to temporarily cover his children's sins, Jesus Christ was offered up, consumed by a divine wrath that should have gone to you. Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God to permanently deal with our sin. Yes, evil men chose to murder Jesus. Yes, Judas, his own disciple, chose to betray Jesus. Yes, Satan himself was unleashed on Jesus. But the suffering of Jesus was not something that was out of control. It wasn't the result of blind chance or fate. It wasn't that Satan got the upper hand on God. Are you kidding me? The Apostle Peter in his sermon in Acts 2 holds the wicked murderers of Jesus responsible for their deeds, but in the same breath affirms the total sovereignty of God. He says, you killed and crucified this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God permitted what he hated. Why? The same reason he does everything he does for his glory and for the good of his people. On the cross, God's mercy and compassion and justice are put on display, putting God's greatness in the spotlight. And through the cross, men and women can, if they put their trust in Christ, find total forgiveness for their sins now and a future home in heaven later. If we doubt that God can work in our trials and bring about blessing in our lives if we feel like our sufferings are so overwhelming and painful that there's no way that God can be working in this, if we question whether or not God has good intentions for us in suffering, we need to remember that in the cross, God used the worst suffering and pain and injustice to bring forth unbelievable blessing for his people and glory to himself. God permitted the sufferings of his beloved son And those sufferings became the means to Jesus' ultimate glory and exaltation. And the moment where it seemed like God was most absent was the moment when God was working most powerfully. And as beloved adopted sons and daughters of the same heavenly Father, we can have the hopeful and confident expectation that he is working powerfully and mightily in our darkest moments. In closing, I want to point out that we sufferers on this side of the cross have an advantage Job didn't have. And we're going to read later on in the book of Job that Job begins to struggle with questions about whether God is even for him, if God loves him. But you know what? You don't ever have to wonder that. You and I can do something Job couldn't do. You can look back to the cross, which is the proof of God's love for you. It's the evidence of his commitment to your good. It's the sign that reminds us that even as we suffer now, Jesus himself entered into the pain and suffering of this world. Indeed, this righteous and innocent man who deserved none of this suffering exceeded your own suffering, and he did it ultimately to save us from eternal suffering. What you're going through and what I'm going through as suffering pilgrims will not last forever. For those who place their hope in God, for us, we have the promise and assurance sealed in Jesus' own blood 
that the people of God have something better in their future. Your best life isn't now, and thank God for that. God permitted something he hates, the persecution of his son, to achieve what he loves, which is glorifying himself and redeeming you from this world of suffering. And through the suffering of Christ, God will bring about for his people a return to Eden, a return to the paradise of God where there will be no suffering, no pain, no sorrow, no death. It'll actually be better than Eden because this time there will be no accuser there. And the cross is the proof that you can bank on all of it coming true for you. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Father, let your word strike and penetrate our hearts and bring hope, healing, conviction, encouragement, comfort, and a greater love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.